Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that gives you the secret history and little-known fascinating facts about your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. My name's Jordan Runtuck. And I'm Alex Heigl. And what are we talking about today, Heigl? Today we are talking about Rumors, one of the best-selling albums, most memed albums, most over, possibly over-discussed albums, and we're here to continue to discuss it. I know, you know, I was reluctant to tackle this, but you know, it, it, I know it's so well-trod territory, but so much of the focus of the discussion before has been about the relationships and all the interpersonal drama in the band, and there's so much more that went into the making of this great album. But uh, give me a taste, give me a taste. What do you, what do you got? Uh, well, we're going to get into it. We can't give it all away up front. But we got, I mean, we got so many things. For example, the balls on the cover of the album, Mick Fleetwood's balls. There's a story there. We'll yeah, get into that that's later. what I wanted. That was literally, you read my mind. That was what I wanted you to talk about was Mick Fleetwood's balls. So if you want to know more um, about Mick Fleetwood's balls, stay tuned. We'll be right there. But no, I mean, it, make it, sure yeah. to tweet at us. Make sure to tweet at us using the hashtag <laughs> Mick Fleetwood's balls. <laughs> Presented no, I mean, by Tide. It really is. I mean, you know, despite all the soap opera that went, in, you know, that went into the discussion of it, it really is a perfectly produced pop album. I mean, it's pretty, you know, unimpeachably great. How do you feel about this record? I could see you being more of a Tusk fan. I'm definitely more of a Tusk fan because Tusk is weirder. But this album is also, despite having being so overexposed at this point, it is also very weird. I mean, it's a record by what three quarters of like a blues rock band who imported a couple of Americans, one of whom doesn't play guitar with a pick. Uh, it's like just a bizarre formula for a record that became so ubiquitous. Yeah, I think a lot of that goes away when people talk about the everybody's having sex with each other and all the cocaine. But, you know, the music still holds up as one dude skateboarding on TikTok reminded us all this past magical year. Yeah, isn't that great? Fleetwood Mac continuing to bring us all together, even in times of great crisis. Except for the actual band. They are very much not still together. <laughs> yes, that's true. Lindsey Buckham was fired summarily. Sorry. Well, we've got a lot to tackle. So uh, without further ado, 
Here's everything you don't know about Fleetwood Mac's rumors. So, Jordan, I know that Fleetwood Mac, maybe more than any other rock band, with the exception of maybe The Fall, has a lengthy membership list and a history that rivals some of the smaller Russian novels. (laughs) So if you could give us just a top-down view of the world of Fleetwood Mac. I guess the starting point is 1967 when it was founded as a uh, vehicle for the great Peter Green, who really was sort of the only serious challenger to Eric Clapton as the greatest British blues guitarist in the 60s. I think B.B. King once said that Peter Green was the only guitarist who ever gave him the cold sweats, which is you know, obviously <laughs> incredible praise coming from from B.B. King. You're going to get a lot of angry people tweeting at you about Jeff Beck and uh, probably Jimmy Page. But I do think, I do agree with you. I think Peter Green is consistently one of the great, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but blues formalists. Mm. He was like, I want to play traditional blues, you know? Uh, I mean, for anyone who has never heard the uh, Peter Green era Fleetwood Mac, I mean, definitely check it out. Some songs like Man of the World, Albatross is this gorgeous instrumental song. It, it, it's really amazing. To get an idea for like what their the sound originally sounded like, you know, pre-Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie, they did the original version of Black Magic Woman, later popularized by Santana. So if you can kind of imagine that, that's what Fleetwood Mac used to sound like in the pre-Stevie Lindsey pop days. Peter Green, an absolute genius, but uh, a a troubled one, as uh, geniuses often are. Fame really didn't sit well with him, and he kind of, uh, he, he, he dabbled in LSD. Does one dabble in LSD? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the accepted word, but he that yeah, man he, did not dabble. He went he, for um, a full-on swim. LSD basically exacerbated his you know underlying anxiety with, with fame and kind of what was happening to him. He uh, began to exhibit, uh, I guess, what could best be described as paranoid behaviors. He grew a beard and donned robes and large crucifixes and began to talk at length about giving his money away. His mental health deteriorated even further when uh, when Fleetwood Mac played in Germany and they visited a German hippie commune. And his drink was spiked with a heroic dose of LSD and untold other psychedelics. And according to band insiders... I cannot believe people I, used I, to oh, do that shit to each other. Like, I, it, the dead... Um, I was reading the other night about this thing about John Bonham used to give people bumps of heroin while like cocaine was going around. He'd be like, here, try this. And then they'd be like, oh, I feel like I'm going to die. And he'd be like, ha ha, that was heroin. What a funny prank I played on you. People were, this, this musicians were savages back then. Yeah, it was, um... it did not help his uh, his underlying, I guess, what I'll call anxiety. And he, he quit the band soon after and drifted into um, professional obscurity and a lot of, you know, dealt with a whole array of mental health crises. He ended up getting help and made music again in the 80s and 90s. And um, he eventually died, sadly, in the summer of 2020. But he is an absolutely amazing guitarist. His work is beautiful. I definitely recommend checking it out. But he's sort of the godfather of Fleetwood Mac. And um, it's really setting the tone for what is sort of quite obviously, I'd say, a cursed enterprise. Yeah. 
At least the guitar chair. Yeah, the guitar chair. You know, there's, if you've ever seen Spinal Tap, there's a joke about the band not being able to keep a drummer. Well, it's kind of the case with guitarists in Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, guitar. let's do guitarist lightning round. So after Peter Green, who did a bunch of acid and quit, who who comes in after Peter Green? We have Jeremy Spencer, who... Uh, what kind of drugs did Jeremy Spencer do? Um, I don't know what drugs he did, but he left the group shortly before, and we're talking like hours before a gig in Los Angeles, when uh, he was approached on the street by a member of an organization called the Children of God, which is a mm-hmm. uh, religious, I'll say, organization and not cult to avoid getting sued. Uh, <laughs> so that was one. Um, there were a number of other guitarists, a guy by the name of Danny Kerwin, who uh, also suffered from severe mental issues. It was a show that he was playing where he smashed his head against the wall at a show until he began to bleed. And then he refused to play on stage that night at the show. And instead he sat in the audience and just jeered at his bandmates the whole time. Uh, It's a powerful move. There's a powerful energy to that move. I cannot think of another person who quit the band on stage and joined the audience to boo the band that they had just quit. Yeah, that that is, it's quite a power move. Yeah, it, um... (laughs) Yeah, Danny Kerman's replacement, Bob Weston, endured a really brief, unhappy tenure before leaving the group in 1974. So that's three? What are we on, four? We're, I think we're on four. four. And then there's Bob Welch, who was in there, I I think, less than two years. He was. Uh, there are so many people who cycled through this guitar chair that I almost corrected you on Bob Weston by saying, oh, no, that was Bob Welch, just a different guy with a Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Departed Fleetwood Mac guitarists, category W-E. There's just so many. Uh, And so by the end of 1974, amid this parade of brilliant yet unstable guitarists, really the only constant were the rhythm sections, drummer Mick Fleetwood and bassist John McVie, the Fleetwood Mac, from which the band take their name. And John McVie was married to a great British blues singer with the incredible name of Christine Perfect. And when she married John, she became Christine McVie. And she used to always joke, you know, I used to be perfect. And then I met John. And then you like you do a you do a smash cut over to John McVie and his eyes are just rolling so far back in his head that only the whites show. I you know Lindsay and Stevie are like the golden couple of Fleetwood Mac, but whenever I am looking at old footage of them, I always go right to John McVie because his completely over it attitude is so perfect. He I don't know I love him. He's my spirit animal. He's just a seems dour and is just like. Picking up. Well, the you're old, a bassist too. I, well, I yeah, like I'm a bassist, and so he's a great bassist. But it just, you know, seems like a, a grave digger. He's just like, <laughs> guess I'll punch punch the clock today. <laughs> anyway, I love if if in all in all archival footage of Fleetwood Mac, you got to go back and see what John McVeigh's doing in the background because it's probably grimacing. I don't know, but like Mick Fleetwood is also a pretty big grimacer too. Well, he's insane. He's just, you always just see footage of him like making like cartoon werewolf faces. I mean, we'll get into the cocaine later, but good Lord. <laughs> so this is, this is prior. I just, I feel like it's important to note that all this drama and interpersonal strife and drugs and cults and witchcraft, this all predates Lindsay and Stevie. So again, a slightly cursed enterprise. So it's the end of 1974. They're looking for a new guitarist to replace Bob Welsh. And they find Lindsey Buckingham. Mick Fleetwood invites him to join the band. And Lindsey says, well, you're going to have to take my girlfriend too. And that was Stevie Nicks. Uh, should we get into... Uh, yeah, also an extremely powerful move. I mean, every... <laughs> 
maybe a harbinger of what of what's to come with like how how it is to deal with Lindsay Buckingham of not being in a position of power but assuming and negotiating as though he is. As, talk about fake it till you make it, man. This band who's like already a million seller comes to you and they're like, "Oh, we'd like to offer you." And he's like, "Cool, you got to take my old lady too." I don't know why I think he well, talks I don't, they, like they weren't. They weren't a millions. They weren't a million. Well, seller, but they're but bigger still, than because was... Lindsay. Well, there's famously the history. Well, are we getting into their their record? Yeah, tell us okay. a little bit about Stevie and Lindsay. Well, Stevie Nicks was just a teenager uh, when she and Lindsay got together and started making music in 1966. She was a senior and he was a junior, so there was nothing kind of untoward going on there. But if you have a keen memory, a Proustian sense memory of your high school year relationships, her being a senior and him being a junior will color their entire relationship in a certain way. It's true. Um, yeah. They met at a Young Life meeting, which seems sort of bizarre when you consider the cocaine and the <laughs> and the kimonos. And they got around a piano and they played California Dreamin', which is the most California shit. You're already in California and you have to get it. It's the most theater kid California shit ever. Sorry. In a 1981 interview with The Source, Stevie would actually say of Lindsay, I thought he was a darling. Let's savor this for a moment. Yeah, just hold that in your head. I need you to hold that energy because it'll go awry. So around the same time, this is like getting... Late 60s. Yeah, he's not yet a voting age. Uh, Buckingham starts performing in a group initially called the Fritz Rabin Memorial Band. I don't know what that's a reference to. What is that a reference to? I have no idea. I don't know. Maybe I might be nothing. Californians are weird. Uh, Later shortened to just Fritz, thankfully. They play talent shows. Yeah, the Fritz is good. Uh, they played talent shows at their alma mater, which was Menlo Atherton High School, as well as student dances and family parties across suburban San Jose. Uh, when their lead singer dropped out, Buckingham actually flashes back in another... I'm going to keep referencing Proust because I give this little high-low culture juxtaposition. In a moment of Proustian sense memory, he flashes back to that young life theater kid piano duet from years earlier. And at the wizened old age of 19 or whatever... He says, I'm going to call Stevie back and we're going to just make this, make that duo our thing. And they actually got pretty far. They opened for Santana. The second time Santana pops up in the Fleetwood Mac story, uh, they opened up for Steve Miller Band. They opened up for the Ike and Tina Turner Review. <laughs> and they opened up for Chicago, which is just fine. I, I feel like everyone opened up for Chicago around this time period. But then, so we get to Buckingham Knicks of one of the most famous album covers. The two were platonic, mostly throughout this Fritz era, the Fritz era of Buckingham Knicks. But they both decided they wanted something a little more out of music, and they also start to, you know, make a different kind of music together. I'm so sorry I said that, but we're keeping it. Um, and then, by 1971, they make the uh, relatively big decision to jump ship to L.A. to try and make it as a name as Buckingham Nicks. And to hear Stevie tell it, it sounds like she was kind of the one who actually was like, oh, I guess I'll go out and like get a job. And I think she was like cleaning studio producer and engineers like homes for, for money and working as a waitress and stuff. Yeah. And basically to allow Lindsay the time to just sort of sit at home and pontificate. And she, the way she yeah. tells it, she would like come home from a long day at work and he was like sprawled out on the floor smoking a joint, like dreaming up <sighs> melodies and stuff. Uh, yeah. So maybe want to get a job this week, honey? No, sorry, babe. Got this idea for a finger picking pattern. 
So they're recording with uh, with this engineer and producer called Keith Olson at uh, famed Sound City Studios in uh, in Los Angeles, and they completed their debut, Buckingham Knicks. Loved now, ignored at the time, but it features in the story because Mick Fleetwood stopped by the same studio to scope it out for potential use for Fleetwood Mac. And um, the engineer, Keith Olsen, was showing him around and basically wanted to demonstrate what the room sounded like on record. And he played this tape he was working on, which was Buckingham Nicks. And he played it, and Mick Fleetwood is really taken with the guitar work on it, Lindsey Buckingham's guitar work. And so he asked to be in touch. He asked the engineer to put him in touch with his guitarist, Lindsey Buckingham. And that's how Fleetwood Mac finds Lindsey Buckingham for the first time. And then that's when Lindsey says, you know what, I'll I'll join you if you let me bring uh, Stevie, too. And Stevie really, I mean, we're talking in a matter of weeks here, was thinking about giving up on music. I mean, she was ready to throw in the towel and just go back to school. And she was cute. She told, uh, she would say years later that when she showed up to her Fleetwood Mac audition, she came in her waitress outfit because she came right from her day job. I mean, the reversal of fortunes was, you know, this was December 1974. I think they all met up for the first time at a, a Mexican restaurant. And then by mid-1975, they're, they're touring and the uh, the album, the, the white album is what everyone calls it, but the Fleetwood Mac eponymous album, uh, Rhiannon and Say That You Love Me and all those great songs entered the charts. Uh, really, their life changed. And, you know, overnight's kind of a cliche, but it wasn't far off. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 76, we're talking, they're like, they're enormously popular. But the same thing that always happens happens, which is like a band that gets enormously popular and has to tour a bunch together stuff starts happening and it's always worse when there's multiple couples in the band and this is when we start getting into the the juicy non-musical stuff i almost said non-marital but there's plenty of juicy non-marital stuff so what's the first what's the first relationship that starts to go jordan okay well the first relationship that starts to go is john mcvee and uh, christine mcvee the white album tour is really i think what what finished them off i mean they've been deteriorating for years but they uh they split up around the same time that Lindsay and Stevie also started to... Lindsay and Stevie started breaking up a little bit later because Christine would later say, yeah, John and I just didn't talk during the sessions for rumors unless it was like something like, what key is this song in? They just didn't. Whereas Stevie and Lindsay were still in the like fighting, screaming at each other in the middle of takes phase of the breakup. So that was that. And also the interpersonal relationship that I don't think gets discussed enough in the rumors uh, debacle is Mick Fleetwood. The only guy in Fleetwood Mac that isn't dating somebody else Fleetwood Mac at the moment, but his marriage is disintegrating. <laughs> his wife is Jenny Boyd, who is the sister of Patty Boyd, who is George Harrison's wife, who is having an affair with Eric Clapton. Patty Boyd inspired George Harrison's song Something, inspired Layla, inspired Wonderful Tonight. And then Jenny Boyd inspired, you know, some of the feelings on rumors. So the Boyd sisters really are, you know, two of the biggest muses in in music history, I should say. Yeah, it's wild. Such a such a wealth of music comes from <laughs> those two women. And the funny thing to me about this whole album thing is that a lot of times in bands with there's a couple in a band, like the person who's not in a couple in the band is kind of forced into like a child like mom and dad are fighting again but in this band it was just a different archetypes of angry mom and dad divorcing 
that we're just in this whole thing. There's the guy who's having an affair and that's breaking up the marriage. There's the really demonstrative couple who's fighting all the time. There's the like old waspy couple who just isn't looking or speaking to each other, but still leaves in the same car at the end of the night. Truly every archetype of unhappiness goes into making this band. But not financially, it isn't. Yeah, I mean, the record company's basically saying, you know what, your album's really starting to sell. The White Album started selling a million copies at this point, and Over My Head, Rhiannon, and Say That You Love Me were all hit singles at this point. And Warner Brothers, the record label, saying, you know, stardom's yours for the taking. Go and make the best album you've ever made. So that's really what compels them to put on a brave face and hole up in the studio, because they want to capitalize on everything that's happening, and again, try to make the best album they've ever made. And, you know, I mean, much has been said about how, you know, the heartache is palpable in the grooves of this record. I mean, that turmoil just surfaces in these brutally honest lyrics. And it's become this, like, you know, musical soap opera, this he said, she said, romantic confessional. And, again, the thing that's so amazing about this record is that these people are singing these songs about each other to their faces, also, it's not like they're improv. They're not improvising these songs for each other. This isn't like, well, let's see what like you came up with today. Yeah. Like the process of, I mean, you. I thought about this recently because of the Get Back documentary, where it does show like the actual craft that goes into making a record. Like these guys were sitting down and singing really horrifying personal stuff in a very dispassionate way and being like, oh well how am I supposed to sing the third on this note where you accuse me of being a slut? <laughs> like they had to sit down and tear apart all of these songs in a really like workmanlike way. And that's probably where her being just gacked out of their mind was really helpful. Yes. So the, the band in February, 1976, they go up to Sausalito, California to the record plant to make this album. And Lindsey Buckingham really is the one who took the lead on the sessions because, you know, as you said earlier, three fifths of this group had a, a blues background and that's more about, you know, live performance. And Lindsay really had an ear towards making a good record. Like that was kind of the, the the name of the game with this was was not just great songs and good performances, but they wanted to make a record that sounded as perfect as you could. Uh, so he was kind of the one who took the lead on this. And he enlisted the help of Richard Dashett and a guy named Ken Calais, who happens to be uh, pop singer Colby Calais' father. I know you remember Bubbly. I sure don't. No. You don't? No, oh. no I don't. I, uh, who is that? Why do I know oh, that she's name? A, she's a, a pop singer, like, I don't know, No, I mean, 2000s. I know the name, I know the name, but no, I don't remember that song. Oh. You could, you could stick in a sound, a sound, a sound bite of it, and then I would continue to not recognize it. I could, uh, but I don't want to be sued. <laughs> so the band, uh, for this actually has a, basically a blank check from Warner Brothers. This is also at the height of the record industry. I mean, this is like... I use Crosby, Stills, and Nash as my yardstick for all of music industry excess, but this record is emblematic of that. Chris Stone, who was one of the record plant's owners, said in 1997, he called the experience that Fleetwood Mac brought to the record plant excess at its most excessive. The band would come in at seven at night, have a big feast, party till one in the morning, and then when they were so whacked out they couldn't do anything, they'd start recording. Um... <laughs> Which, I, I don't know how old they all are. I guess Lindsay and Stevie are pretty young. Mix on the older side, but like... 
They're like late 20s to early 30s. Yeah, I still don't want to do anything on that schedule. Like eat a bunch and then have to work. <laughs> oh, eating one is the, the most offensive part to you. Not that you're <laughs> getting gacked out till 2 in the morning. But it's, no. the, it's, the, it's, it's the big meal before you record? Well, oh yeah, I mean, like imagine sitting down and having to play drums after you eat like a bunch of L.A. like... Like I don't know what are they eating Mexican food turkey legs like what is what is Mick what is Mick I'm I imagining like, I was thinking like hummus I don't know like California oh, yeah, in the maybe. 70s tofu yeah <laughs> um, anyway and like a lot of things in LA around this particular period of time it's Don Henley's fault yeah you know, Stevie who later when she and uh, Lindsay were, were were done breaking up had a had a, a brief relationship with Don Henley and she later said that he was the one who taught her how to spend money and she said she was talking to did an interview with Uncut and she said he was responsible and I blame him every day the Eagles had spending money down they had Learjets and the presidential suites long before we did so I learned from the best and once you learn to live like that there's no going back it's like get me a Learjet I I need to go to LA. I don't care if it costs 15 grand. I need to go now. That's bone chilling. I mean, the flip, the flip side of that is Joe Walsh talking about waking up for one of his vendors and being like, oh, why, have a, why do I have a hotel receipt from Paris in my pocket? Like, I guess I was in <laughs> Paris for the weekend. Like, I mean, God love him. Glad you guys had a good time. The rest of us aren't. Speaking of spending money in <laughs> yeah. ridiculous amounts, this brings us to the cocaine use during these sessions. It, it, while studying the recording of rumors, it's impossible to avoid the topic of absolutely rampant cocaine use. It's really a sixth member of the band. <laughs> right. Mick Fleetwood worked out once that if he laid all the cocaine that he'd ever snorted into a single line, it would stretch for seven miles, which kind of <laughs> sounds low to me. I want to check that. <laughs> well, there's a there's also like... Didn't Bowie like have a recycled line about snorting half of Columbia or something? So it's like all well, it might have been Elton John. Might, but okay, any of them. All really. of these guys just have like these easily at hand comparisons, uh, quantifying their cocaine abuse. Now, apparently, it was seven miles. Would have thought longer, but um, good for him. They would kind of justify it in later years by saying, you know, for the the work schedule that they were on, it was more of a necessity trying to just combat fatigue during these, you know, really grueling multi hour sessions. Not to mention just the torturous emotions that were flying around. I mean, you know, Stevie said in an interview with Mojo in 2012, you felt so bad about what was happening that you just did a line to cheer yourself up, which, I mean, you know, it's kind of given the fraught pressure cooker of an environment that they were in. It, it's, it's sort of understandable. It played such a major role, Cocaine did, in the production of Rumors that the band seriously considered thanking their drug dealer on the album credits. <laughs> And apparently, Mick Fleetwood says in his 1990 memoir, Fleetwood, My Life and Adventures in Fleetwood Mac, he said, unfortunately, the dealer got snuffed, executed, before the album came out. So they didn't end up, uh, I'm surprised they didn't, like, put a tribute. Yeah, like, they, dedicate, know, they dedicate a yeah. track to him. <laughs> well, Black Sabbath did that around oh, the same right. time. They, uh, Yeah, in volume four, you can see them thank the great Coke-Cola uh, because that was their idea of a subtle joke. But yeah, my favorite anecdote from this is that these guys kept their Coke in like these little velvet baggies, like probably not on, not dissimilar to like a Crown Royale bag. And they would have the engine, the, I guess, it was the engineers, Ken Calais, who they would have. Ken Calais and Richard Dashett were like co-producers and engineers. So they, so they, but they, they them. treated them like interns. They were like, bring in the bag. 
And um, so at one point, Ken Kalei is decides to mess with them a little bit. And um, on one once he's when he's summoned, he brings in a bag that he has, unbeknownst to the band, replaced all the cocaine with talcum powder, and does this like elaborate like Glaven high and like sp- you know spills the cocaine all over the room. And just <laughs> you watch the blood drain out of the band's face, and then um, they realized they'd been pranked and did not murder him this day. But uh, my God, it also Mick Fleetwood's like a big dude. Can you imagine like all six four of like an angry, g- gangly, wild-eyed British man like rising up from a drum set after holding you because, two sticks? Yeah, I because say. he thinks you've spilled his cocaine. They're braver men than I am. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Um, but the famously happy-go-lucky atmosphere behind the recording of Rumors didn't just extend to cocaine-based humor. Christine got a little in on the action at one point. That's right. Christine McVie told their manager that they were breaking up as an April Fool's Day prank. Now, again, this wasn't even this. This is not as quite as lighthearted as it sounds. She called their attorney <laughs> to tell her that the band was breaking up and they would not be finishing the album. And she, she was running through the speech she was going to give him all day, really working it out, wringing every emotion, every tortured emotion from every word. And so she called this attorney and told him to call the head of Warner Brothers Records. To let him know that this was what was going down and that the band were done. So she hangs up and everyone in the group's trying to like figuring out when to call their attorney back because they don't want him to actually call the head of Warner Brothers, you know, 10 minutes, like just long enough for him to like work out what he's going to tell the head of Warner Brothers that their their new biggest star is, is done. And then um, she called him back and reminded him that it was April 1st, April Fool's Day. And they all had a big laugh, which were probably fairly rare during these sessions. That is borderline sociopathic. I'm sorry. It's just a mean thing to do to someone. It's not quite George Clooney sending Julia Roberts 20 bucks and saying, I hear you get 20 a picture now. <laughs> You're just telling someone this, their income stream is about to dry up and that, ah, whatever. They seem fun. They looked like they had a fun time. Everybody had a fun time making rumors. If there's one thing to take away from this podcast, it's that rumors was a laugh a minute thrill ride. <laughs> But that happy-go-lucky atmosphere doesn't just extend to the pranks, it also extends to the songs, such as You Make Loving Fun, which is one of my least least favorite song titles of all time. Oh, really? Imagine saying that to someone you love. <laughs> I mean, you're married. That's not like, that wasn't part of your vows? Or If I, if I, if, if I, now disregarding that my wife is a Fleetwood Mac fan, if you were to say to that to someone you were with, like, darling, you make love and fun. What the f***? <laughs> I mean, Who says I don't that? know. I mean, just as a whole era of, like, you know, calling someone, you know, you're my teddy bear. was an Elvis. I don't know. There, there was, there was Whatever. A, it's a great song. It's a great song. It's a great song. Dumb title. It's a great song. But, but Christine McVie wrote this song about a new relationship that she was in with Fleetwood Mac's lighting tech. <laughs> but in order to keep the peace in the very small studio live room, she told her now ex-husband John that the song was about her dog. Which I gotta say, the lighting designer is probably the guy who came out the best in all of this, except for the band who got rich. But like, he's talking about punching out of your weight class. A lighting designer suddenly getting involved with the keyboardist and vocalist of the band, especially when that woman is like 1970s, like Christine McVie, like that man truly, the Pete Davidson of the LA 1970s <laughs> music industry. Good Lord. But according to Ken Kelly's memoir, John eventually figured out the true meaning of this song and boycotted the sessions for a few days. At least that's his version. Uh, John himself told a different story. In an interview from 2015 with Mojo, he claimed that it took him years to figure out that this song was about his wife's rebound relationship. So Yeah, um, I don't know. We're getting into like the Led Zeppelin problem, which is that all of these people were extremely up and all of them are like low-grade ego maniacal so they're all kind of unreliable narrators which do you think it is which do you think it is do you think he caught on to it or do you think it took him years and follow up which one makes him look worse <laughs> i think he must have caught on because the lighting designer his name's curry grant he was like around during the sessions and, and in ken calais memoir he's talking about these like 
you know, almost like a rom-com style, like him sneaking in the back door to like <laughs> see Christine briefly and while John's in the control room or something. I mean, it was like, he, he was definitely around. So I've got to guess that. But, but then again, I mean, this was, I guess, the same time that, um, that John apparently rigged up basically like a wine bottle IV. I think he had like a wine bottle upside down with like a cord coming out of it that he could presumably stick into his mouth. Um, I hope it wasn't intravenous. Jesus God. Yeah. I was going to say, if there's one dude who I like don't trust, like self rigging up an IV, it's John McVie. I, I mean, the wine bottle IV and the cocaine probably didn't help matters. So, I mean, I, I think the jury's still out on whether or not he clocked that you make loving fun was not about Christine McVie's dog, but about her new boyfriend. Yeah. Maybe just like seven days later or seven years later, he woke up and was like, wait. It's like the song I've been doing on stage for seven years now. Oh, wait. Yeah. And wait a minute. Wait, the guy on the spotlight. <laughs> oh. But funny little side fact about You Make Loving Fun. Cindy Lauper, when she was first getting her start as a singer, was commissioned in 1977 to record sound-alike covers for like budget releases. And um, I guess she later said that she was paid $12 to sound like someone else. And uh, the only session that she ever did during that era that was actually released was a version of You Make Loving Fun. And that's the first song she ever released. That's Cyndi Lauper's first release. And it was so rare that she actually didn't even have a copy of it. I think a fan had to give her a copy of it like years and years later. So there is a fun little side fact about Cyndi Lauper and You Make Loving Fun. Just when you think that this band can't ensnare anyone else, they pull in Cindy Lauper. Like they're they're not even just pulling in people from the west coast of America. Now they've got their fingers in New York too. Um, Lindsay and Stevie have a pretty interesting moment in this. You know, Mick Mick's breakup is pretty unilateral. His wife just is like, "I'm going to leave you," and it was for uh, his best friend, by the way. Yep, again, for his best friend. And John and Christine are just, like, not talking to each other, but she has moved on. John is in a committed relationship with alcohol. <laughs> but Lindsay and Stevie are still in the, like, high school junior-senior having knockdown down drag-out arguments in front of everyone else. And Ken Calais has this recollection of them doing the background vocals to You Make Loving Fun, and they're just on two stools in front of a pair of microphones. And... During every moment of playback while they were tracking that, anytime they weren't singing, they would just immediately go screaming at each other. Like, uh, guys, all right, we got check levels. F*** you, ass. You can go to hell. I f*** you. I'm moving out when we get back to L.A. You Just, I mean, it's truly good to, like, you can't write this stuff, you know? Um, and they nailed it. I mean, you're right. They still nailed it. You're absolutely right. Consummate professionalism. But let's get let's get away from let's get away from the damn vocalists. Three vocalists for a band. Too many vocalists. Let's 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 put this spotlight back on our de dear sweet Mick Fleetwood for a second. Yes. Well, I, I guess we got to talk a little bit about the uh, the, the vocalists because no. Okay. <laughs> So we're going to talk about Sweet Mick Fleetwood and his drumming on Go Your Own Way, which, written by Lindsey Buckingham, one of the truly great kiss-off songs of all time. Uh, it was written at a, a house that the band rented in Florida between legs Red of the... Red flag number uh, one. Right. It was between legs of their uh, Fleetwood Mac tour. And Mick Fleetwood remembered that the house, and I'm quoting, had a distinctly bad vibe to it as if it were haunted, which did nothing to help matters. 
I don't want to shame Mick Fleetwood more than life already has, but you know, if you lose six guitarists, it's like the you might be a redneck. If you lose six guitarists in a year and you're writing songs in a house that you think is haunted, it might be you, Mick. <laughs> Ten years of bad luck and bad vibes in a band. You look who the common denominator is. Oh, I, I would not. Oh, Mick Fleetwood is a ball of joyous energy. I would not blame him for six guitarists leaving. <laughs> no, it's John McVie. We all know it's John McVie. <laughs> Sorry. But uh, Go Your Own Way was, uh, I think, the first song that was written for Rumors. First song Lindsey Buckingham wrote for Rumors, at least. And um, he picked up an electric guitar and started chugging out this chord progression. You know, he described it as a stream of consciousness. And the first phrase that he hit was, loving you isn't the right thing to do. Which, um, you know, kind of quickly opens itself up to a, uh, a stream of bile about his uh, his ex-girlfriend, Stevie Nicks. So he's, he's working out the song. And he... Uh, uh, he's driving into the session to record it and he hears Street Fighting Man by the Rolling Stones and has a really distinctive kind of rolling drum beat. And he goes over to Mick Fleetwood and tells him he wants it to sound like Street Fighting Man. Mick Fleetwood is dyslexic and we describe it in later years, he couldn't nail it. He said his own ineptness contributed to the fact that he had this like really disorienting, unsettled beat for this song that Lindsay was working on. And it worked. And they just kind of went for it. It ended up being a perfect fit for the track. Uh, he, he later said in an interview, I never quite got to grips with what he wanted. So the end result was my mutated interpretation. It became a major part of the song, a complete back-to-front approach that came, I'm ashamed to say, from capitalizing on my own ineptness. Uh, but really, I mean, to me, it makes the song. Yeah, I think he's short-selling himself there. I mean, the other thing, too, is that, like, Lindsay supposedly came in and was just kind of, like, clumsily, like, bashing this out on the drums and being like, this is what I want. So, like, we're like... <laughs> Oh, I am a living God. This is what I want. And Mick Fleetwood's like, oh, well, uh, you know, you're not a drummer, but okay. So I'm just imagining like full on Afro era, Lindsey Buckingham in a kimono, high on coke, standing over a drum set, like bashing out a drum beat and like yelling at Mick like, did you get it yet? But that's not even the craziest thing Lindsey did during the making of this album. He, uh, you know, it extended to the engineers and it was unsurprisingly, it was a guitar solo that brought it out of him. So why don't you tell us that story, Jordan? Yes. Uh, so perhaps the most extraordinary part of this song, aside from just the pure venom of the lyrics, is this searing guitar solo. Apparently it was the guitar solo that finally won over the original Fleetwood Mac guitarist, Peter Green. I guess up until that point, he wasn't all that sure about Lindsey Buckingham, which I mean, fair. <laughs> but this fiery guitar solo had some real heat behind it. According to Ken Calais' memoir, uh, Making Rumors, Lindsay was so high strung, strung out, whatever version of strung you want to call it, that <laughs> he strangled him during sessions for this guitar solo. I guess Lindsay laid down a version. They were tracking different versions of it. Uh, he heard it back, said he didn't like it, told Ken to record over it. Uh, he went back out there, did another take on the solo, Went back in, listened to it back, didn't like it. So yeah, let's go with the last one. And everyone was like, well, you told Ken to delete it. He, 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 he recorded over it. And this is when I'd like to go directly to, uh, to Ken's book. Please do. You did what? Lindsay demanded. His face turned bright red and the veins in his neck began to throb. Then he put his guitar down and charged into the control room, approaching me from the front while I was in my control booth seat. Lindsay placed both hands 
around my neck. You're an idiot, Lindsay screamed at me, his hands tightening around my throat. Lindsay had pushed me all the way back in my seat and his hands could have crushed my windpipe. At that moment, time slowed down for me. I didn't feel fear or anger. I just thought that Lindsay was being really stupid. <laughs> uh, and then I guess, you know, everyone in the room, all the other bands, look, Lindsay, what, what the hell? And, you know, record scratch, he looks up and realizes his bandmates are all looking at him. And, you know, it's worth saying these bandmates have all done some pretty terrible things to each other. They're like, the this past. is finally a bridge too far. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I guess they all demanded he apologize to Ken. And I guess Lindsay, like, left the room and got him a beer and like, <laughs> tried to smooth things over. Which, uh, you know, didn't quite do it. In Ken's book, he continued and said, uh, of course, Lindsay could have sent one of the road crew to get me a beer. But he wanted to get out of the studio. And I was happy to see him leave. I didn't really believe that Lindsay was sorry that he'd tried to choke me. Maybe he was sorry he'd done it in front of other people. But somehow, I think he thought he had the right to mistreat people. I just love that, uh, I love that Ken, that he talks about entering a state of, like, <laughs> Buddhist nirvana. <laughs> yeah. and. And, and, to, and to, with, like, no thought for his own life, but all he can think of is, Lindsay, you idiot. <laughs> like, you stupid idiot. That's so great. Good for Ken Calais. Makes me want to listen to his daughter's <laughs> music. Um, but Lindsay succeeded in choking that guitar solo out of Ken Calais' throat. <laughs> Um, yes, I mean, Ken uh, later assembled what was the final guitar solo from six different lead guitar takes. And I guess he had all the tapes up on the control board and he'd fade them in and out one at a time, which is kind of why it all sounds like this kind of dreamlike, like one melody line would come in and then another one would come in after that. So Ken, despite the fact that Lindsay tried to strangle him, worked his magic and uh, brought forth a really incredible guitar sound for him. Yeah. Which is, you know, the job of every studio engineer in the world is to eat shit from the band and then polish their turds into gold. Anyway. So how did Stevie feel about this song, Heigl? <laughs> Not great. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, the line packing up, shacking up is all you want to do. You know, it's not just a lazy rhyme. It's not just reductive, but it's mean. <laughs> and Stevie asked him to uh, get rid of that. And of course, he did not. And she said, Rolling Stone, she later said, I very much resented him. He knew that it wasn't true. It was just an angry thing that he said. And every time those words would come on stage, I wanted to go over and kill him. He knew it, so he really pushed my buttons through that. It was like, I'll make you suffer for leaving me. And I did. I think the thing that's really insidious about this is that, like, how much of this was really covered when they were talking about it, you know? She wasn't, mm. like, able to give her side of this story at the time, so she just had to suffer through this song, accusing her of all of this stuff becoming one of their major hits. I don't know. It's gross, man. It's sad. But a nicer a nicer anecdote involves another person that, that the rumors uh, Fleetwood Mac universe, in the extended universe, is, which is kind of out of left field, Sly Stone, baby. Um, that is right. Yeah. Uh, Stevie Nicks wrote her hit song, I think Fleetwood Mac's only number one song, Dreams, in Sly Stone's bed. 
We'll talk more about it in a second. But first, Dreams uh, really was kind of her answer song to Go Your Own Way. I mean, she would call Dreams and Go Your Own Way twin songs because they kind of chronicle the struggle to untangle uh, their toxic relationship, their toxic partnership from each other. And she would later say in, a, in, a, in the liner notes to the Rumors Deluxe reissue in 2013, even though Go Your Own Way was a little angry, it was also honest. So then I wrote Dreams. And because I'm the Shafani chick who believes <laughs> in fairies and angels and Lindsay is a hardcore guy it comes out differently Lindsay's saying go ahead and date other men and go and live your crappy life and I'm singing about the rain washing you clean we're coming at it from opposite angles but we're really saying the exact same thing it's true both songs about moving on one of them is bitter and resentful and mudslinging and the other is a little more zen about it one way of putting it good for but, her but um but sessions at the the record plant in Sausalito were were usually pretty tedious i mean there's a famous story about the engineers taking like 5 days to get a good drum sound and that really wasn't Stevie's thing at all i mean she wasn't really into the technical side of things and so there wasn't a lot for her to do she's like you know foremost a singer songwriter so when all the studio technical stuff was going on uh, she was pretty bored, and to keep the boredom at bay, she went into a, uh, a room nearby. It was an unused studio that had been built for Sly Stone, who was a, you know, Northern California guy, um, you know, in addition to Sly and the Family Stone, who's a big, big-time producer as well. Um, and Set so- the stage. Set the stage <laughs> for what they called Sly's Pit. Yes, it was. At the um, record plan. It was a sort of, it was a black and red room with a sunken pit in the middle, and there was a big black velvet bed with Victorian drapes, and I guess there was like a Fender Rhodes in there too. And so she would just sit in there, bring her her knitting, I think she would say, and her crochet, and write in her journals, and sketch out song lyrics, and sketch pictures and stuff. And she would just kind of hang in there, and and it was kind of her little hideaway when um, you know when they were doing all the technical stuff in uh, in the studio room. Uh, and it was in there that she uh, she wrote. Dreams. Uh, she would later say in an interview with Blender, I sat down on the bed with my keyboard in front of me. I found the drum pattern, switched my little cassette player on, and wrote Dreams in about 10 minutes. And it's got this really simple, like when she first presented it to the band, it was this three chord riff that, you know, it was kind of like, kind of hypnotic in a way. Um, Stevie would later say that the band weren't all that crazy about it when she first heard it because it was, it was almost boring. It was really just three chords. And um, I think Christine McVie later said that she she did think it was boring. Rude. But Lindsay, right. <laughs> Lindsay worked with uh, Stevie on it, which, I mean, again, there is something to be said about how much they worked on each other's songs, even when they were, you know, about each other. Stevie would later say in an interview with, uh, with the Daily Mail that she played him the cassette demo of, of Dreams. And... Even though Lindsay was mad at me at the time, he played it and looked up at me and smiled. What was going on between us was sad. We were couples who couldn't make it through. But as musicians, we still respected each other. And I think that that is the main point. Lindsay fashioned these three separate sections out of identical chords, but he made every section sound different. And like I was saying earlier, it's really kind of a boring song on like a skeletal level because it's just a couple chords in there that repeat over and over. He made it so that each section sounded sonically very different and kept your attention and kept it interesting. To me, it's interesting that the band's nickname for it was Spinners because they, um, when she first played it for them, it reminded them uh, of a song by the R&B group 
soul group, The Spinners. And I guess people have sort of over the years tried to figure out which Spinners song that it is. And I was just on a message board and people think it's I'll Be Around because the chord progressions are not... Oh, wow. They're not entirely the same, but the tempos are a little bit closer and the melodies are both kind of moved around the pentatonic scale. So apparently, if you're interested, maybe uh, uh, you can make a judgment on it in the same way that the rest of Fleetwood Mac did about whether or not Dreams is I'll Be Around by the Spinners. I didn't realize that the drum sound on Dreams was like an eight bar loop that they just had. So it almost sounds like a proto like techno kind of thing. That's why it sounds so yeah. kind of like hypnotic as it's just the same thing over and over again. I didn't realize that until researching for this. And it's six part vocals. It's, I mean, it is really, I think more than go your own way. This is like the, <laughs> Stevie's revenge against Lindsay was ultimately having better songs. Um, <laughs> Which is, again, a hot take, but like I think it probably kills Lindsey Buckingham a little bit that Dreams is what people think of when they think of rumors and not go your own way. Especially after this song blew up on TikTok, you know, and like it was just memed to death. I mean, I'm sure Lindsey, yeah, I don't know. I, I would venture a guess that part of that bites at him, that her song became like iconic. Not that go your own way isn't iconic, but hers popped back into the zeitgeist more recently. I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting. Well, also at the time, I mean, Dreams was, I think, Fleetwood Mac's only number one song and Go Your Own Way. It hit number 10, but 10 ain't one. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm sure that must have. Uh, 10 ain't one, baby. <laughs> I must have called him. This ain't NASCAR. <laughs> <laughs> if you ain't first, you're last. That's hilarious. That's a bit I want to see is Stevie Nicks parading her number one for Dreams in front of Lindsey Buckingham going, If you ain't first, you're last. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Doing donuts on his front lawn. <laughs> oh, man. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made, and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. 
The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Well, while we're on uh, on Stevie's uh, yeah, Stevie's greatest let's keep hits the on Stevie this songs. Oh yeah. Uh, did you know that Gold Dust Woman features the sound of Mick Fleetwood shattering glass? <laughs> like on his own, or just <laughs> no one told him to do it. He just that's just kind of what, course. Yeah, no, no people they they did tell him to do it. Uh, <laughs> so this is the genesis of the song. It's you know Stevie's other big you know, standout moment on Rumors. The song title comes from Gold Dust Lane in uh, the town of Wickenburg, Arizona, where Stevie spent time as a child. Uh, Sounds depressing. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Any place with a road called Gold Dust Lane can't be that depressing. Uh, the other thing about this song that will not surprise you is uh, the rather paper-thin metaphor behind the title. Yeah, I mean, you were you use the word dust around Fleetwood Mac, and the assumption would be that cocaine is somehow involved. Um, and in an interview that uh, Stevie gave, I guess she was doing an interview with Courtney Love for Spin in 1997, and she confirmed that gold dust was a metaphor for cocaine. She said, everybody was doing a little bit. You know, we never bought it or anything. It was just around. And I think I had a real serious flash of what the stuff could be or what it could do to you. And I really imagined that it could overtake everything, never thinking a million, in a million years that it would overtake me. I must have met a couple people that I thought did too much coke, and I must have been impressed by that because it made it into the whole story. <laughs> she met them at work. <laughs> so according to Stevie, this was basically about cocaine abusers before she really got heavily into it herself. Um, the take that was chosen for release on uh, Rumors was apparently recorded at four in the morning after just a long night of attempting it in the studio. And in the final take, Stevie, I guess, wrapped a black scarf around her head to kind of like really veil her senses to the you know the world around her and really inhabit this character and get inside this song. And to accentuate Stevie's uh, lyrics, uh, Mick Fleetwood broke panes of glass. Um, I guess uh, Ken Kelly later said that um, Mick was wearing goggles and coveralls, and he just he said he would just went nuts. He was just bashing glass with like a big hammer, and he tried to do it on cue, like on rhythm in the song. But I guess he was just getting a little too overzealous and and wasn't quite hitting it. So finally, Ken was like, you know what? Just 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 break the damn glass. We'll fit it in the song. We'll do it in post. We'll do it in post. <laughs> 
Here's another fun fact for you. The sheet of glass that Mick Fleetwood broke in the master take of this song actually went on to be the same sheet of glass that gets broken as the intro for Stone Cold Steve Austin's walk-in music in the WWF. I really hope you're not kidding right now. <laughs> no, of course I'm making that up. Oh, I'm, oh. Uh, that's... <laughs> It's the same sheet of glass. I was, like, like, I was on this message board and yeah. this glass message board. I that would no, that's that's on the Steve Hoffman forums for sure. <laughs> I you know, I think the man, there's so much every time you start learning about the making of this album, it just becomes like they were just it's like inter enhanced interrogation techniques. Like being in a place where you don't know whether it's day or night, being flipped to like a completely nocturnal schedule. I mean, it's like they're it's like they were in Vegas. How deranged are you after months of being like completely nocturnal under like emotion. I mean, I'm surprised they weren't like confessing to kidnapping the Lindbergh baby. <laughs> <laughs> Just make it stop. I'll sign whatever. I'll do whatever. Let me be, go back to the light. Well, the whole Vegas thing about, you know, no windows, no clocks, no anything. I mean, that was kind of a selling point in the seventies of like, you know, yeah, all musicians kind of kept those hours anyway. And it was yeah. kind of, you know, it made it easier. It would be depressing to see the sun coming up and knowing that, you know, you still had hours to go to get the take or whatever, and you still needed to do it. I mean, I kind of understand it in a way. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I tell you, you mentioned earlier that uh, they spent five days getting drum sounds, which is sounds about accurate. But if we do an episode on Tusk, we'll get into this. But also as legends of Lindsay being a wackadoo on during the making of Tusk, the seeds were sown during the making of this record. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about what Lindsay put the good people of the record plant through. Uh, yes, uh, apparently the band required four days, nine pianos, and three tuners to find a suitable instrument for Christine McVie, and we mentioned the, uh, the five days on drum sounds, but I think my favorite story about Lindsay's maddening pursuit of sonic perfection was for the song Never Going Back Again. That song began, uh, under the working title Brushes, and it was this really simple acoustic guitar tune that he played with snare rolls by Mick Fleetwood, which is kind of where it got its uh, working title using brushes on the snare and the band added vocals and further instrumentation and it got more layered and got more developed and um, I guess it was one of the last songs that Lindsay wrote for the album the first song that he wrote was Go Your Own Way about breaking up with Stevie this was the last one he wrote which is kind of more about a rebound relationship and moving on he said later it was a you know a sweet if naive song but Ken Kelly the same guy who spent five days getting a drum sound <laughs> and it was also strangled by uh, Lindsey Buckingham for a guitar solo. Man deserved a purple heart for making this album. <laughs> he was asked to change Lindsey Buckingham's guitar strings every twenty minutes. Because... Well, he asked he asked them to do it because what he supposedly says and never and you understand this because like if you listen to that song, it's so bright the sound of the guitar and that's like fresh string sounds. But you know it's all finger picking, so you're getting more like oil and and uh the, every string is getting touched more by Lindsey buckingham's disgusting hands <laughs> so you lose brightness really quickly from that so apparently he he started saying Lindsey buckingham's darkness infects the brightness of the yeah, strings. exactly that's, that's exactly. the main takeaway here so calais says you know i noticed that anytime he played there was a big difference in how bright the strings sounded after like 20 minutes so he said can we start just restringing your guitar every 20 minutes and he put he drafted the studio techs into doing this and says i'm sure the roadies wanted to kill me 
restringing the guitar three times every hour was a bitch. But Lindsay had lots of parts on the song, and each one sounded magnificent. But there and was a problem. There was a problem. The co- oh, the coda to this. When Lindsay goes to sing, because the song is capoed. Uh, and so he, when Lindsay goes to sing, he realized he played all of his guitar parts in the wrong key. So after a, a whole day of tracking three guitar parts per song with string changes three times on the hour, they wiped all of it to do the whole thing the next day over again in the right key. What a cost. Three studio techs a day, whatever the day rate for is it. I mean, you could buy a car for that much money. It's like Steely Dan being like, we bought this studio for a week to audition guitarists to play one solo and none of them got it right. So we're starting over next week. You know, like, I love this phase of the music industry because, man, these people you, were just burning money. Yeah. <laughs> But now let's talk about one of the... Well, the more more low budget. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll crank the studio budget dial to the absolute other end to talk about Secondhand News. Yeah. Secondhand News, one of my all-time favorite tracks on the album. Did you know that the percussion sound on that song is a leather chair, or a pleather chair, I should say, in the studio? That's what that sound is. Secondhand news, I mean, man, what a classic opener. I mean, you know, the the opening lines, I know there's nothing to say. Someone has taken my place. What a perfect way to just set the mood for the entire album. It's such a great song. Um, From the perspective of everyone involved. (laughs) Right, yeah. It was inspired by uh, another of Lindsay's sort of rebound relationships after uh, attempting to move on from Stevie Nicks. He will never move on from Stevie Nicks. Who are we kidding? No, he sure won't. Not after Silver Springs, baby. (laughs) But actually, those words were not there at the start of the sessions for this. I guess he kept the songs instrumental at this early stage, probably not wanting to antagonize Stevie. So in the early phase, he kept the lyrics to himself. And it started as this like kind of almost like a Celtic march kind of thing. And they were thinking that the song sounded a little too folky and they wanted to add kind of a dancey R&B groove to it. And they were inspired by the Bee Gees jive talking, which actually was inspired by the Bee Gees driving over a bridge in Miami on the way to the studio. You know, when the tires kind of go over those like metal, you can kind of hear that. And that's what inspired jive talking. That's what inspired the kind of like rolling percussive effect, almost like a proto disco groove. So if you're keeping track on your beautiful mind style collage of rumors at home we have now pulled the Bee Gees and the city of Miami into this web (laughs) continue (laughs) as you were so to get this kind of percussive groove they pounded the seat of a Naga Hyde chair Naga Hyde is like cheap fake leather and uh, Ken Calais later said Lindsay was the accent king which is very generous considering this man once tried to strangle him uh he could mm-hmm. accent with guitars he could accent with tom-tom drums and he could accent with naugahyde chairs so it just goes to show you i mean how far the band would go to get the sound that Lindsay heard in his head from change of guitar strings every 20 minutes to playing on a chair that happened to be nearby and sometimes they would even venture outside of the studio isn't that right heigl yeah absolutely when we progress onto songbird They actually, at some point, decided they wanted to see the daylight, (laughs) which seems like it came out of nowhere. But uh, when it comes to Songbird, Calais says, I'm going to try something different with this one. And he had actually recorded an album with Joni Mitchell at the Berkeley Community Theater. 
he explained this to Music Radar in an interview at one point, and he says, I thought about doing something similar to a kind of concert recital recording. And perhaps maybe they're just exhausted <laughs> by this point, but the band said, okay, let's try that. But uh, the Berkeley Community Theater was unavailable. So Kalei goes to the university and says, I'd like to book the auditorium complete with an orchestra shell and a nine foot Steinway. And he really, you know, set and setting for this. He really goes the extra mile. Um, when she shows up to record, he uh, requested that a bouquet of roses be placed on her piano and three oh, colored huh? spotlights shining down on them from above, which, yeah, after you're trapped in this cocaine hell with all of your exes and their exes to come into like an auditorium that's like lit in this beautiful tableau. And he says when she first saw it that she nearly broke into tears. And I can easily understand that. Then, of course, things went insane. And they <laughs> spent 18 hours to record this song in this auditorium. They stayed until seven o'clock the next morning because they can do nothing easily. That's the thing. They can take Fleetwood Mac can take something as relaxed and beautiful as a solo piano recording and turn it into a death march. And she's but she did it in one take. That's that's the really incredible thing about this song is that that's the take. Well, I think that's and, why it took so many hours. Yeah, was that, she was I like, I was like, it was supposed take. to be a complete take. And I guess Lindsey Buckingham was playing acoustic guitar. I think on the same stage, and maybe it was just a combination of getting them both to do it. You know, to get the same take at once. Uh, apparently the live performance was captured by 15 microphones placed around the empty auditorium, which nearly one for every hour. <laughs> I, I don't know much about audio engineering, but that sounds excessive to me. Is that it's like a lot. I mean, I'm sure they had like two or three on the piano, two or three on the guitar, but that's still a lot of damn microphones for, right. for what is three elements of a song anyway, but we haven't even gotten to the weirdest is weird is weird the word I want to use? I don't know. I, I just having it called "Oh Daddy" is makes it feel weird to me. But yeah, "Oh Daddy's maybe my least favorite song on the album. But one little but quirk talk about, about this. It. Yeah, I, I enjoy this. <laughs> Apparently, at the very end of the song, you can hear Christine McVie pounding the keyboard in frustration. If you listen closely, uh, but first, the really pressing question is: McFleetwood, the Big Daddy. Let's get that into this. There, there are yeah. mixed stories about who inspired O'Daddy, and it's widely believed to be about Mick Fleetwood, who at the time was the only father in the band, and he's just sort of the, the big daddy of Fleetwood Mac. You know, he's he's the Fleetwood of Fleetwood Mac. He's like nine feet tall. He's just like, <laughs> he was kind of the de facto manager. He's just, you know, he's, he's the big daddy of Fleetwood Mac. It makes sense. But uh, apparently both Lindsey Buckingham's former girlfriend, Carol Ann Harris, and Stevie Nicks' biographer have written that the song was originally written about Christine McVie's new boyfriend, Curry Grant, the band's lighting designer, who spent all of the sessions trying not to be killed by John McVie. Um, <laughs> Just putting on different hats and like right. coming in in disguises, like Peter Sellers' routines. <laughs> so that, that's the two different theories about who is the big daddy of Oh Daddy. But apparently when they were recording the song, poor Ken Calais, uh, there was a problem with the tape machine and the tape snapped and right when she was singing Oh Daddy on the tape, so all you heard was Oh Addy. So for months, they called the song Oh Addy, just as kind of an in-joke to rib poor Ken, and then they'd go back in, and I think they had to just do punch-ins for uh, that part when uh, they dropped the D. Um, and then she uh, later tried to strangle him. <laughs> But anyway, when, on the on the track that made it on the album, uh, near the end of the song, 
Christine, I guess, thought that she made a mistake and to get the band to stop just to get their attention, she started hitting just random notes on her keyboard. And you can hear it at around, I think, the, the three minute and 42 second mark on the song. She's just like kind of hitting, you know, elbowing the keyboard. Um, but I guess nobody noticed and they kept right on playing. And uh, Ken Calais would say, you know, that we finished the take and that one had the magic that we were looking for. So we <laughs> went with it. But you can hear Christine McVie pounding her keyboard in frustration, which is Probably something I imagine she would like to have done more often during these sessions. <laughs> yeah. Now we're getting into my favorite bit of Rumors Minutia, uh, which is Silver Springs. And, you know, again, this goes back to the Russian novel thing because you kind of have to know about Fleetwood Mac lore to explain this. And apparently it's sort of an open joke in Fleetwood Mac that Stevie can kind of run at the mouth that her stories are a little long-winded. And this even has continued because there's an event, the Music Cares event in 2018, where she's kind of going on and talking a lot. And at one point, Lindsay rolls his eyes. And uh, that was like the straw that broke the camel's back during this particular decade. And so he got kicked out of the band <laughs> subsequently. But, you know, as opposed to writing these very, con it, you see it with dreams, like as opposed to writing these concise Beach Boys style pop songs, like Stevie and this is going to sound very cliche, cast spells. You know, these songs are more meditative and they kind of, they're dreamy. And Ken Fillet later says, Stevie is so prolific, all of her songs were initially about 14 minutes long. You know, so she would just go on and on and there were stories about her mother and her grandmother and stories about her dog. And so he says, it was my job to sit with her and cut them down to three or four minutes, which would drive her to tears. But so she has this song that is explicitly about Lindsay called Silver Springs. They were in Maryland and they were driving under a freeway sign that says Silver Spring, Maryland. And she loves that name. And she says, she would later say, it sounded like a pretty fabulous place to me. You know, you could be my Silver Springs. That's just a whole symbolic thing of what you could have been with me. But one of the things that she wanted to do with this song was sign away her publishing for it to her mom as like a present. She was like, you know, I'm kind of getting more money and I'm like set. I want the publishing for this song to go directly to my mom as like her gift to her mother. So by the time they get to sequencing rumors and they have all of these songs, vinyl records still only hold 22 minutes aside. So Calais says, you know, we were concerned that we might have too slow of a record. We didn't want to put the needle down on side one and have all slow songs. So they started sequencing test runs and found that they couldn't make a sequence that worked, that didn't feel too slow. That included Silver Springs. So they axe Silver Springs. And they bungled, they fumble the touchdown. <laughs> like It's bad enough they cut this song, but then the way that they go about telling her is so much worse. Take it away, Jordan. It's pretty brutal. <laughs> so they think, oh, geez, Stevie's going to be really bummed that she's not getting her allotment of songs on this album. So they decide maybe she'll be, it'll soften the blow if we do another one of her songs, maybe a quicker song, maybe a shorter song. So the band minus Stevie record the instrumental backing to I Don't Want to Know. Uh, which was a song from the, the Buckingham Knicks era that was just kind of left over. They'd had it for a long time. And so they break the news to Stevie. I think Mick Fleetwood takes her out into the studio parking lot and says, you know... But he's taking her out to shoot her. <laughs> like, he, like, we got to go out behind the building for this one, Stevie. Like, God, these people. So Mick says, you know, 
we can't have this song. I'm sorry. The, the record's too long. It doesn't fit. I'm sorry. Stevie later said, needless to say, I didn't react well to that. Eventually, I said, well, what song are you going to put on the album instead? And they said, well, re-recorded. I don't want to know. And uh, she said, I think Lindsay thought it would be okay with me because I wrote it. But I wasn't okay with it. Uh, She's just classic man sh- Like, we're taking your song off the album, and we also decided which of your songs we're going to put on instead. Right, yeah. So she she went in and recorded that song seriously under duress. Silver Springs was relegated to the B-side of Go Your Own Way, which was especially galling considering, you know, the song that meant the world to her is now the B-side to... A song, the song that, that tr- drags her through the mud. Right. You know, shacking up's all you want to do. So that really just kind of added insult to injury. And it really, it remained a deep cut until uh, Fleetwood Mac's 1997 live album, The Dance. And- Which I'm getting goosebumps even thinking about. Everyone, do yourself a favor and Google the performance of Silver Springs from The Dance to watch a bloodbath <laughs> non pareil Like, Good Lord. It is one of the most harrowing performances I've ever seen in my life. The eye contact she, is really what, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, it's 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 beautiful. It's a one-of-a-kind thing. And the capper to that bit is that she used to check into hotels <laughs> on the road under the alias Miss Silver Spring. So she truly never let go of it until one day she murdered him. Uh, moving on. This brings us to... I think this is my favorite track on the album. It's probably everybody's favorite yeah. track on the album. The Chain. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Chain, so-called because it's really a combination of sort of unrelated songs that the band had worked on that they all linked together, kind of like the Beatles did with the Day in the Life. Um, mm-hmm. The Chain has its basis in an unreleased Christine McVie song and an old Buckingham Knicks track. Yeah, at its core is a Christine McVie song called Keep Me There, which and the pantheon of all-time draft names was called butter cookie back in the day which is so funny i love when songs are like that you know you get something like the jam that turns into like tiny dancer or something and elton john was calling it like you know the minister's tea kettle or something dumb like that anyway it's it's a keyboard driven song because obviously christine mcvee wrote it but they never really got around to finishing it And so Buckingham says what happened. He tells Rolling Stone in 1977, he says, we decided that this song needed a bridge. So we cut a bridge and edited it into the rest of the song. So you get two, the two halves of keep me there, which are built then around probably one of the coolest baselines in maybe of all 20th century pop music. It's so good. And it's John McVie, you know, it's his shining moment. So they just made that the middle of the song. And I guess it just stayed in partial form for a while. Buckingham says it almost went off the album. Then we went back and decided we liked the bridge, but we didn't like the rest of the song. So it really came together kind of catch as catch can. But uh, the interesting thing about the guitar part is that their self-plagiarization recycling continues. Buckingham basically steals a guitar figure from himself from this song called Lola, My Love, uh, which is recorded from the Buckingham Nick days, and he recycles that for the chain. And then, so the ending of the song is actually the only thing that is left from Christine McVie's original track, which, as you will recall, was called Butter Cookie. It comes up with a much better name, The Chain, because it was a bunch of pieces. And then 
Jordan, what would you describe as the final link in the chain? Well, I'm glad you asked, Heigl. I think that the final link in the chain were the lyrics. Uh, originally, the song had no words because, again, it was just a bunch of instrumental parts from unrelated demos that were all linked up. And Stevie wrote the words. And uh, I don't even think she necessarily wrote it initially with this song in mind. I think she wrote the lyrics independently. And then she came in and said, you know, I've wrote some lyrics and they might fit for this thing you were doing the other day. So it got all linked up. And uh, it really, I mean, it's just a centerpiece of the band, not only their, their live set, but just their whole canon. It really is such an, an apt metaphor for this group of people that are just bound together for decades despite all this turmoil. I mean, the chain will keep us together. It's a symbol of strength and togetherness, but it's also imprisonment. You know, I mean, the words to that song are, are so brilliant. And the chain, I believe, is the only track that all five members of the classic Fleetwood Mac era all have a writing credit on. I think that's the only one. So, I mean, it's, it's funny that song that's called The Chain, that's sort of about the love-hate relationship of everybody kind of being bound together is something that they all kind of had a hand in creating, which is, is pretty fitting. And it's got a bass solo. And it's got a great bass solo. Hell yeah, John McVie. At the end of the day, John McVie comes out on top. Yes, he does. John McVie was actually the one who hit upon the title Rumors for this record. They were initially going to call it Yesterday's Gone from uh, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow, but John McVie suggested Rumors because he thought the band were, you know, their songs were basically journals and diaries, and they were talking about each other through their music. And that brings us to the album cover. Ugh. Iconic. Herbert Worthington's absolutely iconic cover features Stevie in her witchy Rhiannon guys dancing. I think she's dancing with Mick Fleetwood, whatever that we want to call that pose. It caused some <laughs> drama. The cover caused some drama because why not? Every other element of this production caused yeah, some drama. As if something would go smoothly. Right. No. <laughs> uh, according to the photographer Herbert Worthington, uh, Lindsey Buckingham has, quote, never forgiven me for not being on the Rumors cover. And this is in Ken Kelly's book. I guess Ken interviewed him. Lindsay came up to me and said, I wish I could have been on my own damn cover. He didn't say damn. I had that, but, but emphasis mine. Um, <laughs> and Herbie, I guess, tried to explain to Lindsay, you know, the cover idea was about creating a piece of art. It wasn't supposed to just be straight headshots of the group. Uh, Lindsay was not happy about that. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm not on his side for this. I'm sorry. Like, you've got the guy in the band who's eight feet tall. You've got the woman in the band who looks like an actual fairy. And, like, the guy who wears kimonos and has, like, an enormous mound of goofy curly hair is, like, pissed off he didn't get to be on the cover. Like, it looks like an oil painting. Like, it minus the balls thing. But, like... It's so beautifully arranged, just like imagining like Lindsey Buckingham standing there, like hands on his hips in his kimono, like just dead center, just throws it off so much. You love this image of Lindsey Buckingham in his kimono is very strong with you. I want to know more about well, where that a, comes there's from. Well, there's a uh, there's a performance of them doing dreams at one point, and it's I think he's playing a Les Paul. It's before he's playing the Rick Turner guitars, but. He is truly wearing a kimono belted at the waist. Not unlike Rush in a certain era from them, but I don't know. He's just, he's just a, he's a striver. He's just a hilarious person to me. Someone who takes himself so, so seriously. Um, anyway, sorry. But you mentioned uh, Mick Fleetwood's balls earlier, as you well should have. Mm -hmm. There is a story about the pair of wooden balls that are dangling from Mick Fleetwood's pants. It's definitely a weird detail. I mean, it's something I've kind of always wondered about. And 
those balls you almost have, miss it like it almost seems yeah. you almost miss them because it the, there's so much poise and like staging and his limbs are so long <laughs> and then and then you look down and you're just distracted by this bit of gaucherie you would think that it was just this kind of like spur of the moment boyish prank and it's not these balls actually have kind of a long history with nick fleetwood as kind of a, a good luck <laughs> talisman they're what were known as lavatory chains they're the things you'd pull to flush the toilet and they date back to uh early fleetwood mac gigs like in the Peter Green days in the 60s. And he said, he gave an interview with the Maui Times in 2009. And he said that, well, I had a couple glasses of English ale and I came out of the toilet with these. I guess he just ripped them off the toilet and he just (laughs) tied them to his pants down between his legs when he was playing just to be funny. And, uh, you know, he would later say, in truth, I started off as a blues player. The whole ethic of a lot of blues music is slightly suggestive, I might say. And suitably, I walked out on stage with these two lavatory chains, with these two wooden balls hanging down, and it just stuck. And this wasn't his only tribute to uh, virility, I suppose you could say. Uh, He also went through performative masculinity. Right, yeah. He went through a long period of placing a dildo on top of his bass drum that he called Harold. And I guess it was like a mascot almost on par with like the penguins uh, in the pre-Buckingham <laughs> Knicks days of the band. And I guess uh, Harold's career came to a uh, an abrupt end when Fleetwood Mac were touring the American South. And I guess they were nearly arrested for having a dildo on the drum kit. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so that was that. But the balls, meanwhile... Mick Fleet would continue to, to to wear them as sort of like a, a, a good luck charm, really. And they made <laughs> uh, an appearance at pretty much every Fleetwood Mac show. And apparently the original set were lost on the road, which, I mean, would be an amazing, you know, rock and roll Indiana Jones adventure to try to track down Mick Fleetwood's <laughs> rumors balls. Um, but he makes do these days with uh, with a replica. And he says, I think this is speaking to the Maui Times, I won't say they're as old as me, but, and it starts getting an X-rated commentary here, my balls are quite old. F***ing weirdo. <laughs> Sorry. We all, we, we all have our good luck charms. Hey, but, if you but, happen to know the whereabouts of the original set of Mick Fleetwood's balls, please tweet at us using the hashtag MickFleetwood'sBalls. <laughs> I promise you, Jordan will enjoy that. This is like unsolved mysteries. Like, <laughs> yeah. like Robert Stack being like, update. Update. Yeah. Mick Fleetwood's balls have been found. Yeah. I wish I had a Bobby Stacks impression on deck where he's like, uh, I don't know if I can pull this out. Three yeah, hours yeah, after really. we three hours after we broadcast the episode on Mick Fleetwood's balls, a housewife in Des Moines, Iowa was watching our show and called in three hours later. Mick Fleetwood's balls were found and returned to him. A tearful reunion. Mick Fleetwood yeah. <laughs> reduced to tears. My balls. Speaking of Mick Fleetwood's balls, Ayo! Ayo! Uh, Annie Leibovitz's Rolling Stone cover shoot and Mick Fleetwood's balls actually played a large part in... God, I'm so sorry. Um, so the band, when they were going to be on the cover of Rolling Stone, uh, Cameron Crowe's doing the story. Annie Leibovitz is shooting the art. And, you know, it's an open secret in LA that this band is a catastrophe of interpersonal relationships. So the pitch for the art is to have them in bed with each other. And Fleetwood says in Play On, he says, The intention was a spoof on the rumors about our private lives. And yet, symbolically, the picture showed us exactly as we were, all married to each other. 
It's and, a generous uh, read on that. But okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, she knows her audience. I'll say this. And so the band arrives at her studio and she had left cocaine out for them. As a treat. As a treat. Yeah, exactly. Here's a little charcuterie plate. Here's some cocaine. Um, but then she says they looked a little freaked out at first, but then consumed it in like 30 seconds. Then I learned they'd all recently been to rehab. So they were all a little jittery and tense. So great setting for a photo shoot. Band fresh out of rehab is offered cocaine and put in bed together. The original concept for the art called for the two ex-couples to embrace each other, but they wisely walked that back a little. Buckingham says, you know, for Stevie and me, the wounds and animosities were still very fresh. So the idea for the photo wasn't all that funny. What's the Fleetwood Mac song on Tusk that's like, not that funny, is it? <laughs> anyway, Nick's put her foot down and she said, okay, I'll be in bed with all of them, but I can't be in bed next to Lindsay. So I curl up next to Mick for the next three hours while Annie is suspended over us on a platform. And Christine didn't want to be next to John because they had just divorced. So John sits by himself reading Playboy. Now, this obviously strange bedfellows make for strange bedfellows because this session Nick's and Buckingham backslide. So this is something that I find really hard to believe, but Stevie is quoted as saying that she and Lindsay actually hooked up while in bed for this photo shoot. To read the quote, and I'm not totally sure where it's from, but afterwards, Lindsay and I got to talking about how amazing it was that not so long ago, I was a waitress and he didn't have a job. And now <laughs> we were on the cover of Rolling Stone with this huge record. And we lay there for about two hours talking and making out. Finally, Annie had to tell us to leave because she'd rented the room for only so long. <laughs> Annie, Which, Annie Leibovitz is like, get a room. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but perhaps even more surprising, you know, Nix is also in bed with good old Mick Fleetwood. And, you know, it, uh, it sparks something in them. Fleetwood later writes that the shoot caused him to realize that he and Nix had definitely known each other in previous lives. Which is some, 19, put it. That's some 1970s pickup line shit. If I've ever heard it, like, oh, hey, babe, I think, like, we might have known each other. But it wasn't a one-way thing. Nix later admits herself that that particular photo session planted the seed for Mix, Mick and Me, which happened a year later. So they, you know, earnestly embark on, on an affair during a late summer break during the band's tour schedule later that year, uh, just before they headed to the South Pacific. So maybe it's a little pre, pre-South Pacific romance vibes. Um Stevie and I used to slip away and go on adventures after gigs, which was an easy way to get away, Mick recalls. They would go to Maui, they'd go to New Zealand, they would just go driving through the Hollywood Hills, which doesn't sound, Mick Fleetwood at the wheel of an automobile does not sound relaxing to me, but they parted eventually, but, you know, Mick Fleetwood still looks back on this with pretty admirably rose-colored glasses. He says, we just love each other in the true sense of the word, which transcends passion. I will take my love for her as a person to my grave because Stevie Nicks is the kind of woman who inspires that devotion. I have no regrets and neither does she, but we do giggle sometimes and wonder what might have transpired if we'd given that passion the space and time to blossom into something more. Which is like, that's a really, that's a really nice quote from Mick Fleetwood. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I think that is a, actually a great note to end on for all of the, yeah. the bile and spite and resentment and just torturous interpersonal relationships that went into the making of this album. You, you have that. You have that beautiful quote, a really nice moment shared between two people. Didn't work out, but they both appreciate each other and what they had for a brief moment of time for what it was. 
I think that is beautiful. I think that should yeah. be, uh, you know, they say, you know, people don't change. I think that is the hero's journey. They changed. They, 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 <laughs> took, they took something from all this. I think that is. Yeah, you're, if there's two things I want you to take away from this podcast, I, I want you to take away that rumors is really Joseph Campbell's The Hero's <laughs> Journey and hashtag Mick Fleetwood's balls. Uh, this has been too much information about Fleetwood Mac's rumors. I'm Alex Heigl. I'm Jordan Runtuck. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you in a few days with more fun and adventure. <laughs> Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.